0: This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is a bonus weekend edition, and the story of this episode begins about four years ago. I was living in New York City... And a friend invited me to talk about my work at Soho House, which is a sort of fancy restaurant hotel club thing where everybody is dressed with annoying perfection and alarmingly perfect hair. And I'm feeling a little bit out of place. And just before my talk, I meet some of the other speakers who are there. And one of them is this jubilant, broad smiling guy who says he's read some of my articles about the future of work. And oh, by the way, He's running for president, and I think, good luck, man. Uh, There are a lot of interesting ways to blow up three years of your life, but that is probably the most interesting option of all of them. And his name is Andrew Yang. I will say this for Andrew. He has definitely had a more interesting four years since than I have. He has become a political celebrity. He's run for president. He's run for mayor of New York. And now he started a third political party. So a few weeks ago, Andrew reached out to me and he said, Derek, do you want to come onto my podcast to talk about the economy? And I responded rudely, no. Do you want to come on my podcast and talk about politics? So both of us answered yes, compromise. And we had this great hour-long conversation that you're about to hear. Uh, Andrew and I agree about a lot, but we do not see the world in exactly the same way. I think he is more certain than I am that robots are taking our jobs. And I think he's more optimistic than I am that a third party is the most efficient vehicle for rescuing American democracy. But what I like about Andrew, what I really, really like about Andrew is that he cares about reality. And it might seem like a kind of absurd compliment of a person, but when it comes to modern politics, it might be the highest compliment you can pay. The dude really cares about reality. He cares about seeing the world as it is. So as you're about to hear, the interview breaks more or less into two parts. In the first half, Andrew interviews me about my outlook on the economy, remote work, social media. And in the second half, I interview Andrew about the state of politics and the prospects for a third party in America. And finally, what it's actually like to run for president. As always, thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please follow, rate, review. And here is Andrew Yang.
1: so pumped to be on Plain English with Derek Thompson because this podcast is going to explain the world to a lot of people. Thanks for having me, Derek. I reference your work all the time when I'm trying to figure out what's going on in the economy. Uh, You know, you and I have known each other for a while. You've written several books about different aspects of uh, the hitmaker economy. So I'm going to lead off with a question on everyone's mind, which I'm sure people ask you at cocktail parties and the rest of it, much to your chagrin. What the hell is going on with this economy? <laughs> like what what is going on? Like where are we right now?
0: It's so funny. So I we just recorded a podcast about this. And um, my one sentence summary of where things stand is all the good news has an asterisk and all the bad news has a silver lining. So you pick some piece of good news. Like, uh, look, unemployment is lower now than it was in any month of 2016. That's an extraordinary achievement after the pandemic. At the same time, one of the reasons why unemployment is so low is because we're missing six, seven million people from the labor force. Uh, there is a large number of people who retired early because they're afraid of the pandemic. There are people who are waiting out the pandemic on the sidelines because they don't feel comfortable working or they really hate a job they just quit. Or maybe they have a financial cushion, and that's obviously good. We don't want to force people to work starvation jobs. Uh, But there's a piece of good news that has a little bit uh, of an asterisk. Then all the bad news has a silver lining. Like, look, inflation is real, and it's the highest that it's been in— a long time, maybe more than 30 years. Uh, It's higher when when you look at like gasoline prices, the year-over-year inflation rate is one of the highest prints on record. At the same time, the high inflation rate is partly an evidence of some good things that are happening. Demand is so much higher than we thought it would be maybe a year ago. People are spending a lot, retail numbers are up, restaurants are roaring back. The supply chain can't yet meet all of this demand. And as a result, it's cashing out as high inflation. So the way that I think about this economy is that, you know, in the 1970s, we invented this portmanteau of a stagflation economy, stagnation plus inflation. Yeah,
1: Jimmy Carter, stagflation, That that's like the, the, the great fear. Yeah,
0: this is not stagflation. This is kaboomflation. This is a booming economy that is also seeing inflation. And I think it's really important to distinguish uh, the, the the bad growth that we saw in the 1970s from the accelerating growth that we're seeing right now coming out of the pandemic. A lot of good stuff is happening, but it all has an
1: asterisk. Growflation. We need a term. Uh, you know, I guess if you're the Biden administration, you just want to, to avoid this term stagflation and Jimmy Carter redux, which I, I think is the vibe. Uh, unfortunately, we'll return to that uh, a little bit later on. I'm not sure if kaboomflation is going to catch, though, Derek. I gotta be honest. So, so, <laughs> so, 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 we need we need something else. Like bullflation. I like. I don't know. Work on it. By the end of this conversation, let's try and coin this term.
0: You got it. Yeah, we got we got boomflation. We got bullflation. Capalflation. Well, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of dashflations that we can throw out there, and I'll sort of have it on. I'll have that program running on background as we speak
1: please do. I know you're capable of multiple cycles. (laughs) So let's dig into uh, each of the pieces you just described. So you said headline unemployment reads as being quite low, but people have dropped out of the workforce. And one of the facts that I just saw reported that you retweeted actually was out of Ben Castleman, which is that we're still missing 4.2 million jobs since before the pandemic. A lot of that's in hospitality and leisure. So Uh, So the the first question is, uh, what is going on with these six million or so people that have left the workforce and how should we think about the labor market? Healthy, unhealthy?
0: I think previously very unhealthy and getting healthier. I mean, we basically put the economy into a forced coma in April 2020. Uh, So we are coming from a flash freeze recession in the spring and early summer of last year. And we're coming out of it. We added more than 500,000 jobs last month. I mean, in any normal time, that would be an absolutely enormous number of jobs.
1: Yeah, which was less than what a lot of people were hoping or projecting from way before. So in absolute terms, it's good. But it, it was it fair to say that people were hoping for better X months ago? Is that right?
0: I think if you look at the three month running average, we're getting a little bit technical here. But if you look at the three month running average, right, like the general trend is a little bit slower than people were hoping. But last month's number was really, really strong. And I think we can continue to build on it, as hopefully, fingers crossed, knocking on whatever wood is available, COVID fears continue to decline, vaccines continue to move through, boosters continue to improve the general level of antibodies, and we don't see the same spike in deaths uh, this uh, winter that we saw last winter. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that this winter, especially into early spring, we're going to have a really healthy labor market. Lots of job growth, and not just job growth, Andrew, this is something I know that you're interested in. Um, If you look at wage growth and where wage growth is the strongest, it's not at the top, thank God. It's not the middle. It's at the bottom. Wages are growing fastest for the low income, and they're growing fastest because uh, as leisure and hospitality comes back online, restaurants and uh, retailers are having to raise wages— to keep people working there. Because otherwise, what are they doing? They're quitting. Great resignation. The most Americans on record just quit their jobs last month, and the period or the sector with the most job quits was accommodation and food services, so hotels and restaurants and bars. Um, you put all this together, and my brief summary is things were really bad last year. They are getting better for sure. They are getting better a little bit slower than we were hoping, and they're getting better with this other a- a- asterisk, which is inflation is higher than we expected that it would be, in part because supply chains are too constricted to provide for all the demand that's coming from the U.S. economy.
1: So to the extent that there is still pain or lag in the economy, uh, and we're we're going to try to unpack this great resignation, which is on everyone's minds. Anytime you go out to eat uh, or to shop, you see help wanted signs everywhere. Uh, you know, people are like, hey, you know, jobs available, come come, uh, apply. Um, I, and I believe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing wages go up at the low end. is People are like, well, and people aren't applying to jobs. It's just like, you know, I guess we're going to have to raise our wages. Someone said uh, in an article, employers think that 15 bucks an hour is a lot of money until they find out that's what McDonald's is offering. <laughs> and so there is this baseline that's coming up. Uh, So the folks that have left those jobs uh, and are kind of waiting to be enticed back in, how are they able to make ends meet? Do we have a sense? Is it because they received enhanced unemployment benefits uh, before? And haven't most of those programs at this point uh, stopped uh, applying to the same level? I think this is a really good question. It's a little bit of a mystery to me
0: why we see such a large labor force dropout, Like six to seven million jobs or people looking for jobs. That is a lot. That's basically the labor force of Pennsylvania that we're missing from the economy, even though overall GDP is basically higher than it was before the pandemic started. Like that is definitely a mystery that I don't want to pretend I have 100% of the answer to. But if you're going to piece together an answer, it's pretty clear to me where the pieces start. They start with savings that people have from last year because they weren't going on trips. And they weren't doing special stuff because the economy was shut down. It comes from the stimulus checks, obviously, as you said. It comes from enhanced unemployment benefits, as you said. Um, you piece it all together, and I can sort of begin to see why you, uh, how you have this sort of financial cushion. Um, but then you move away from, fin- from financial cushions, and you also have COVID, right? People might still be afraid of catching this in a restaurant or in a hotel. So they're not applying to those jobs. Uh, You might also have the fact that because schools are still a little bit messed up, you have moms and dads who don't want to leave the house. They want to stay home and be there in case their kid has to be forced out of school in case, you know, school is shut down for a week because there's a COVID case or two. Uh, So they're, there are a bunch of different health and economic and psychological reasons why people are sort of holding out from the economy. And I think if you piece it all together, you have the basis of an explanation for the, this this labor shortage mystery.
1: I think a lot of it's burnout. I think a lot of it's mental fatigue. At least like some of the folks I talked to just were like, screw this, and went, went home and then have just been figuring it out. Uh, and... Um, I see this in a variety of fields. I just saw a piece about how healthcare workers are burning out, which we all understand, but it's not just in that industry. It seems like it's all over. There's been a lot of rethinking. I almost feel like we had this very uh, strict conditioning that then got broken during COVID. And now when you say to folks, Hey, you know, do what you've always done. A lot of people uh, are very, very hesitant and trying to figure out a new path. A lot of people moved, you know, I've seen the relocation rates, uh, have been significantly higher than normal, which we can talk a little bit about when we talk about whether remote work is here to stay and what the heck that means. <laughs> but so so your characterization of the labor market is like, hey, it's been really, really sick, but it's getting better. and And we're not sure about some of the um, the adjustments because you know like the 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 fact is that there are a few different pieces to it.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you you mentioned two things I think are really important to talk about a little bit more. One is the fact that people are reassessing exactly what the role of work should be in their life. They're they're burning out of their jobs. They're taking some time to rethink their career or rethink, uh, you know, what they're going to do for a living. Um, and I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. In in large part, I think the Great Resignation is for workers great. It's wonderful that people can have an opportunity to make that calculation. I mean. In an economy, let's imagine some, some sort of Earth 2 American economy, which isn't so different maybe than, than Earth 1, where a lot of Americans feel like they don't have the opportunity to quit if they're burned out. They don't have the opportunity to quit if they feel like they just don't want to do their job anymore. They have to work or they're going to starve and their family will starve. That's not a world that I want. It's not a world that I know. It's not a world that you want, especially with your interest in UBI. Um, but fortunately, with the, with this with these checks and the savings and unemployment, and expanded unemployment benefits, I think people do have this freedom to have you know, a great reset. And then in addition to the great reset, you also have this great reshuffling. You have people moving more than they used to. We had declining migration in the U.S., declining sort of intercity and interstate migration in the U.S. I think since the 1970s, it was a pretty long period of declining mojo in this country. And in the last two years, people are moving more. They're moving to the suburbs of metros they live in. They're moving between cities. I think that's a good thing too. I think that, you know, I I want an economy where people don't feel so precarious and so desperate to work that they can't experiment a little bit in their life. They can't move to a city to check it out, try try on a job and quit if they don't like it and explore the skills that work best for them and then figure out which one is their favorite and jump all into a career there. I want people to feel that sense of exploration. And you need a little bit, I think, of, of economic safety net laying in order for people to experiment. Um, we've laid a lot of net in the last uh, in the last year and a half. And as a result, I think you're seeing uh, a, a healthy amount of experimentation.
1: And do we think that remote work is here to stay? And then what does that mean? Like, are we happy about that? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are happy about that.
0: I think it's absolutely here to stay. I think it's important to be clear about who it's here to stay for, right? So white collar workers are already a minority of the workforce, and those that can or are already working remotely uh, are also a minority of that minority, right? So it's not, a, it's not a huge number of people relative to the overall economy that are working remotely, but it's still millions and millions of people. And my whole thing on remote work when I'm having conversations uh, about it, and I've been doing a lot of writing and thinking about it, is the theme here, is small changes can have big effects. Small changes can have big effects. Let's just assume that only say 10 to 20% of white collar workers, knowledge workers, right? Media, marketing, uh, stuff you can do with a computer. Let's assume it's only 10, 20% of them continue to work remotely for the foreseeable future. On the one hand, that means 80% of them are going back to the office for the most part, right? So some people are gonna say, oh, look, remote work, it failed. But the 10 to 20% difference is huge if, Let's say you live in New York. If New York subway ticket uh, sales decline by, let's say, you know, seven to 12%, that is potentially devastating for the city of New York. If you have offices that are always 20%, at least empty on any given day,
1: and, and by the, by the way, you're, you're kind of, you know, like you're being very, very conservative in these estimates. I mean, cause right now it's actually reversed where the offices are are 20% occupied and 80% unoccupied. And uh, you're exactly
0: right. I, I'm, I'm, tra- I'm, I'm starting with the conservative take and trying to prove just how dramatic even the conservative take is exactly what you said. So let's say the offices are, are 20, 30, 40% empty for the foreseeable future. That's massive for consumer rents for, 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 commercial rents. That's a massive deal for businesses in downtown urban areas that benefit from all of the work lunches that are sold when the offices are filled or all the window shopping that people do when they are walking between offices on their way to work. So my big thing here again is small changes can have big effects. The spillover effects of a 10% remote work revolution could be absolutely massive.
1: All right. So Derek Thompson, work from home is here to stay. Uh, that, that's something that uh, he's thinking deeply about. And so what does that mean for uh, organizations? So you're saying, look, second tier cities are probably going to have um, some new people, which I agree with. Uh, you're going to see a bit less centralization uh, of talent and human capital and organizational energy. Yeah, I do get the sense that a lot of the big orgs are shrugging and saying, all right, you want to live there? I guess we'll, we'll work with that. Like they're, they're losing that particular tug of war. Um, how do you feel about the continuation of remote work? Are you positive, negative, neutral? I talked to a lot of people who are negative on it, just to share that, where people who run organizations – unhappy (laughs) people, obviously people who, for example, run restaurants and retail establishments in some of these areas, unhappy. Like, how do you feel about it?
0: I think that it depends on who you talk to. And there's a bunch of different sort of spectra that you can look at, right? So one of them is a psychological spectrum, uh, introverts versus extroverts. The introverts that I know. Wow, you're getting deep here, Derek. I'm I'm, I'm starting here, I'm starting here. So like the introverts that I know are so, so happy with remote work. Like they go to the office and what do they experience in the office? People are constantly trying to talk to them. They're constantly trying to blabber about nothing. People always
1: yelling at them and bullying them, you know, just being like freaking introvert and then like taking their their trapper keepers and throwing them on the ground. Is that the way it's going down? All of this,
0: yes. And so they're thinking like, it is so much more calm and happy when I'm at home, like my mental health has never been better. So they're obviously happy to stay home and not commute into an office where they can be, you know, assaulted with, um, impromptu conversation. At the same time, the extroverts, I know, especially the-
1: Assaulted with impromptu friendliness. (laughs) I believe I'm (laughs) definitely talking to an extrovert right now.
0: Um, I, I would consider myself somewhere in the middle. I, look, I, and I should also say, like, for for the, the Briggs Meyer doubters out there, I you, think. You, I mean, you've definitely... written books, so you're
1: probably an introvert. That's like a general thing. The rule of mind is like if someone had the patience to sit there and write a book, they're probably introverted. But you you written
0: you've written twice as many books as I have, sir. So um I don't know if you would consider yourself an introvert.
1: I am an introvert. Anyone who who saw me as a kid would know I'll just be sitting under a tree reading some Dragonlance novel. <laughs> you know, it wasn't exactly <laughs>
0: So yeah, the, the extroverts I know in my life are like, get me back to the office. Like I get, I get confidence and power and feel good about myself when I'm talking to people. So th- that's 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 one way you can. No cut one it. to
1: lord it over in their house. They just start yelling at their dog being like, listen to me, I have thoughts. But
0: speaking of you know, lording thoughts over your dog, <laughs> I, I also think that another spectrum that's important is like um, like lower level employees, mid-level employees and managers, right? So I think managers wanna get back into the office I, I, for the most part, in, in my experience. Like they they enjoy managing people in like a live setting. People that are kind of advanced in their career but not managers, they're happy to work from anywhere. Like they're really, really happy to have that freedom to not have the commute younger workers, I think feel often like they're missing out on culture. If culture to them is just a group slack, if it's just like, if the office just becomes a group text, that's not an office, that's a group text. And so I think that for some like younger employees, they aren't getting necessarily the cultural experience that they want. So I think it cuts a lot of different ways. And, you know, Remote work is one of these things that I sometimes compare to like, like food, like it's ridiculous to say that food is good or bad. Some food is good for some people, some of the time. And that's what we're going to see with remote work, that it's, it's going to be this unevenly distributed thing that works for some people and not for others. And it's going to be particularly difficult. I think for CEOs who are managing large companies that have a wide spectrum of psychological profiles, and extroverts, a wide spectrum of workers, young, middle-aged, and old. That's where the where the the you know what's really going to hit the fan because I think it's just going to be really difficult um, to 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 find a solution that works for everybody.
1: Well, I'm really with you, Derek, and that the people that I feel bad for are the young workers who are coming up because if you just came out of school and you were trying to figure out how to prove yourself in an organization, uh, it's I think it's just harder. Or to get a sense as to how to manage people also probably harder because, you know, you aspire to try and become that manager at some point. I'm going to share something. There is a 20 something year old in my life, uh, you know, like a family member who's been working from home and I think is getting depressed as a result. Um, Now, if you were to ask this person, hey, would you prefer remote work or going into the office, they would say remote work. Um, Now, do I think that the remote work is getting them pumped up uh, on a day-to-day basis or even developing them professionally? Not really. Um, But if you ask them their preference, they still would say, well, I prefer working in my sweatpants to having to commute, like get dressed, go to the office, like do this thing, interact with those horrible other people face-to-face, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, if if you uh, leave it up to them. Um, But I'm not sure that their preference actually matches up to what would help their uh, career over the medium term or even their day-to-day happiness. Uh, Like, uh, and I'm, you know, it's like I'm somewhere in the zone, too, where, like, if you're an advanced professional, you can work from anywhere and you have a family like I do, then, you know, it's like it, it becomes very, very appealing to say, yeah, let me just beam in. Um, But but I do feel for that next generation.
0: What you're pointing to is something that the psychologist Dan Gilbert has called miswanting. It's the idea that we tell ourselves that we want something and then we get that thing. And it turns out that that is not the ticket to happiness at all. It can be anything. It could be a mansion. It could be a 10 hour Netflix binge. It could be a fancy watch. We want these things. We get them we pass through that gate. And on the other side of the gate is the exact same feeling of wanting, the exact same illusion that, oh, maybe something else will be the ticket to permanent happiness. And of course, nothing is. And I think our phones and social media, you know, just to extend from the remote work conversation, are such a huge driver of miswanting in the world, in work, in life, and success. It, in many ways, removes the friction of having to actually move our bodies out of our house to see other people. When maybe the thing that's, most fundamental to happiness is moving our bodies out of familiar places in order to see people that mean something to us. Like, I don't want to be a fuddy-duddy about this. I'm pro-tech, I'm a tech-positive guy, but I think we all know in our bones, we we must know that these tools of frictionlessness have
1: downsides. We see it in the statistics, too. Yeah, you, you and I are aligned on that point for sure.
0: This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rockstar with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more.
1: Um, you recently uh, amplified an idea that scared the shit out of me. Um, and I want to share it with everyone. It's not your idea. Or oh, maybe it is, I'll just share it. Um, so there was a recent consumer confidence survey that said that 87% of Democrats think the economy is good <laughs> or that, like positive sentiment while only 37% of Republicans did. And you noted that this was the largest gulf in terms of perception of the economic trajectory between parties that you had ever seen, 50%. But then even more troubling is that this wasn't only on one side or, or the other, that back in 2019, the gulf actually cut the other direction. Where Republicans thought the economy was great and Democrats thought it sucked by a margin of 47 percent. And so this is something that scared the shit out of me because what it showed was that, hey, it turns out there is no objective reality to the way we experience the economy. And it's just that if my party is in power, I'm going to be more likely to think good things than if the other parties in power are. Uh, I think that's the point you were making uh, by by uh, retweeting. I'm seriously that nodding right? my
0: head throughout all of that. For those who who can't see the video, yes, I I absolutely agree that that is the clear takeaway. Um, just to do I, I do a half step back to 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 set it up because I think that the the historical change is really important. So the University of Michigan has been doing this consumer survey for like 60, 70 years. They basically ask a bunch of people, "How do you think the economy is going?" And since the 1980s, they've been breaking it down, Democrat, Republican, independent, right? Between 1980 and 2017, there had never been more than a 30-point gap between the way Democrats and Republicans saw the economy, right? Democrats and Republicans, more or less, were co-occupants of reality, right? They were experiencing something that we could, that they could agree on was a shared reality. Good times.
1: Good times. We were in the same place, the same economy. And
0: since 2017, it's just gone completely berserk that if a Republican is, is the president, just about all the Republicans say the economy is great. And a lot of the Democrats say the economy is bad. And then when a Democrat is president, all the Democrats say that the economy is good. And all the Republicans say the economy is bad. That's only a slight exaggeration, but that's basically what we started to see. And it basically means exactly what you said, that we used to partially decide whether or not we thought our party was doing a good job by first looking to the economy. But now we decide if the economy is good by first looking to the party that's in power. Ideology is the Pair of glasses that everybody is wearing. And as a result, you might not as well even ask people how good the economy is. You might as well just tell them, hey, do you like Biden or not? Because once, once I hear the answer to that question, everything else that I ask you about reality will simply flow downstream of that comment. And it just goes to this point, which again, you write about in your book, and I have a couple questions about your book, that I, which I thought was really, really interesting, which is that polarization has just eaten up American democracy. Uh, you have. Am I allowed to? Is this is this horrifyingly embarrassing for me if I read to you from your own book?
1: Uh, very much allowed. <laughs> not, not embarrassing.
0: Okay. All right. So, um, page two hundred two forty nine. Um, I think this is a really really profound point. You write in the book "Open versus Closed," political science book. Um, a bunch of political psychologists ask resp- ask responders to talk about. Um, to respond to various, various opinions. They found that disengaged citizens had less of a fixed political identity based upon their psychological profile. They were more pragmatic and practical when presented with a question. They reacted to a policy by trying to answer, what will this policy do for me? Meanwhile, those who were more politically attentive were more likely to try to answer, what will supporting this policy say about me? They were joining a group. What's so interesting about this observation is that you would think that people who were engaged with politics might be thinking economically, but they're not at all. The people disengaged with politics are thinking economically and the people engaged with politics are thinking culturally. And as more of America becomes more politically engaged, this might be another uh, scare the shit out of you moment, Andrew as more of America becomes politically engaged, this research suggests that the future of politics is a culture war. Not a, what will this policy do for me? Not a, what will Biden do for the broken road and the broken bridge and the bad broadband in my zip code, but rather, what does it mean to my Facebook group, to my neighborhood Bible study group, if I support this president's bill? That is terrifying. That the future of politics is so post-material and so cultural that storytelling essentially uh, subsumes actual policy
1: details. Politics has become content, Derek. Uh, I'm very, very scared of it, too. And what you characterize as a vibes war is not the aside. It's actually the center. (laughs) actually, hey, let's like engage in a vibes war and like see who can convince 50.1% of the population that, uh, you know, we're on track. Um, I I also was very moved by that research. And uh, I referenced Jonathan Haidt uh, fairly heavily. I referenced Ezra Klein fairly heavily. Like some of their insights were what led me to head this direction and start the forward party because I looked up and was like, okay. If it really is just going to come down to tribalism and not whether I can demonstrate that my policies are going to help you, then where does that lead? And it leads to, by the way, Civil War 2.0. Uh, and then what is the path out? And the path out to me is one to start a unifying uh positive political tribe, but also to try and break up the two tribes so that there are are like five, six or seven tribes. And then in in that landscape, then if you have these relatively ideological communications lanes, at least you're not going to get 50% of people, you know, like I can inflame a certain segment, which by the way, would also lead to something that I imagine you're for, which is a much more uh, diverse uh, media landscape, where it's not that you have an apparatus that's just augmenting the Republican point of view and talking points and then uh, like, uh, you know, the Democrat, but that there's some other universe. And I would say that you're one of actually the leaders of this universe, which is you try and find objective reality, (laughs) you try to like present it to people in this way. It'd be like reality-based journalism, which, you know, a lot of journalists right now imagine that they're practicing, but uh, but I'm not sure they are. Uh, that, that's, you are, I'm gonna say this, uh, that's a high compliment coming from me. I, I
0: really appreciate that. I, I really do, um, I, I sincerely appreciate that. I really do try to tell the truth. And um, it sounds ridiculous and uh, cliche to say that I wanna tell the truth, but I, I really, really do. And a part of, I think, really wanting to tell the truth as an occupation means just downshifting rather dramatically what tribe or what corner of the political spectrum the truth seems to be coming from. So right now, for example, we've got inflation. Inflation's inflation's here. It's really high in energy. It's pretty high in meat and poultry, and it's pretty high in car prices. Now, there are a lot of Republicans that are saying completely wrong things about inflation like we're why my rep- republic like inflation is 20% like we're about to spiral into you know a germany Venezuela, 1920 situation like, Venezuela, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all bullshit obviously I, that's that's complete bullshit at the same time i really do see a lot of liberals and i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to do both sides here i'm just saying it's unfortunate the degree to which lots of people in the media now seem to be putting ideology over evidence i see lots of liberals Sort of poo-pooing the idea that anyone would care about inflation—that it's basically just a Republican psyop. It's like it's not just a Republican psyop. The like the the Bureau of Labor Statistics is telling you in its own words, this is the highest inflation rate in thirty years. Let's believe them. These are these are nonpartisan economists. Believe reality. And I, I have found it. I, I do think that the the fact that media has become so ideological is unfortunately downstream of the fact that media has become so abundant. We are like, you know, we're like plants in the jungle. We're like plants in a rainforest. We are diversifying and, and becoming specific and different because we need to do so to survive. And you're seeing everyone feeling like they have to have an antagonistic relationship with the rest of media. Like how often do you hear like, people in the media say the media is broken. Well, of course they are because their job is to win an audience within the media consuming public that thinks that they are the only voice that's telling the truth. Like to a certain extent, someone could have accused me of doing this at the beginning of this answer, right? Like right is wrong, left is wrong, only I am telling the truth. I don't want to say that. But at the same time, this is just what I'm saying is the, the character of the media that you are observing is downstream of the media economy, which is so abundant that there are, and there's so many people clamoring for attention that we all have to tell, we all have to have some version of the same message. Everyone else is lying except for me. Come to me and for the in, truth. <laughs> come to me for the truth, come to me for the truth and you will live. And um, and that does make it, I think, very difficult to, to be non-ideological. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't have a. I, I wish I had a quick solution to that problem. Um, I, I, I frankly don't. I, I don't know if you see this the same way that I do.
1: I see it exactly the same. Um, and I'm working on a solution, believe it or not, um, in true Yangi fashion. <laughs> so, so <laughs> tell me your solution. Um, so, let's talk about your solution. Oh well, my solution, and there'll be more to come on this, uh, is to try to augment and properly resource independent voices that have developed a trusted following based upon some degree of loyalty and adherence to the truth. Uh, people like you, frankly, uh, you know, and I could throw out some other names. I'm just going to throw out a couple of names just so, so people have a sense of where I'm going with this, but like crystal ball and Sager, uh, and Jenny, they've developed a following as independent, trustworthy voices. Uh, I, I want to help make these voices the new Uh, network, the new mainstream. And so I'm working on trying to make that happen. Uh, We'll see if if I can be successful. Uh, Certainly, I want to be a part of trying to give us a chance to come back and have a sense of reality and have a sense of accountability to the truth. And I don't see a way to do that without making it so that the resources and incentives are flowing in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I think from a political perspective, I wonder how you see the challenge of winning the storytelling battle. You have this, um, you made this observation that you printed in the book. You said, the Democratic Party, which with, I, I think you're you're often politically aligned, but I do see the why you're interested in forming a third party. You see, the Democratic Party has taken on this role of the urban coastal elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving the working class's way of life that's been declining. Um, say a little bit more about, about that argument and what, what you disagree with the Democratic Party's approach to talking about cultural issues.
1: Well, that quote's from a a CNN clip that was pretty widely recirculated. But it was born in my experience talking to a waitress in a diner in Iowa uh, where I said, hey, running for president. And she said, oh, what party? And I said, Democrat. And then it's like I sprouted horns or a tail or turned purple or something. (laughs) So like that. The Democratic Party has really been coded in a certain way for a lot of people. And if you were generous, you would say, oh, it's because of, you know, Fox and conservative talk radio. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. Um, but it, it does seem to a lot of working class Americans that I met that the Democratic Party does not care about whether their lives are good or bad. Um, and that's a losing place to be if you're the Democratic Party, which theoretically is supposed to be, I thought, for the working class and the little guy and little gal. And so then the question is, well, what do these people think the Democratic Party is about? And they, they think it's about the uh, language. They think it's about culture. They think it's about things that educated people in cities care about more than folks who are in Iowa or Indiana or New Hampshire. Uh, so... That, that was the critique I had and still do have. And, and to me, the goal should be to try and get policies across the finish line. And it doesn't matter what I call it. I mean, it's one reason why we called universal basic income the freedom dividend, um, because it tested better. And it tested better, frankly, with conservatives. <laughs> like, I, I used to tell the story, Derek, where uh, everything tested about the same with people who were on the left. You called it universal basic income, prosperity, dividend, Social Security for all. It was all about the same. By the way, back then, it wasn't that high. (laughs) I mean, it started out at 27% approval, and now it's like 65%. But we called it the freedom dividend because it worked more with more people. And you have to ask yourself, it's like, why is it that Democrats uh, aren't able to make the the same adjustment, which is so obvious. It's like, hey, if you talk about something in a certain way, they hate it. So it's like, maybe talk about it another way. And the Democratic stubbornness seems to be like, no. If if they aren't liking this, then then their ears are wrong <laughs> or, or their minds are wrong. They're not receptive enough to like the language I'm using. And by the way, they exacerbate that because they like change the language all the time. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm pretty hip and, and savvy to this stuff. It's like even I have trouble keeping track of what, you know, like what, what the vocabulary is. <laughs> it's like trying to reach people where they are. So anyway, that, that was what my my point was.
0: Yeah, right. No, so the, the 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 vocabulary they use can be alienating. I can I absolutely I can absolutely see that. To what extent do you think universal basic income right now and popularity of UBI has been affected by the pandemic stimulus checks?
1: Well, you see the appeal of universal basic income rising, and I got two main objections when I was on the trail. Number one is where are we going to get the money, and number two is uh, people aren't going to use it well. And now people realize we actually always had the money and of the literally 160 million Americans who've gotten some form of cash relief over this last number of months, they know how they spent it, which was on (laughs) food and fuel and car repairs and school supplies and the rest of it, or the folks who are continuously getting the child tax credit right now. So uh, because of lived experience, a lot of people like, oh, like we really can do this. And oh, it doesn't turn uh, everyone into a different human being. (laughs) So, um, so I, I feel like this time period has only accelerated the eventual adoption of UBI. Um, And I think it's just going to continue to be, become the policy solution as dozens of mayors around the country, including in some really big cities are now launching various versions and pilots.
0: There was an early objection to universal basic income that said it's going to change the way that people spend their money and spend their time. They're going to become lazy. They're not going to work. And instead, everything that I've read seems to point in the opposite direction, that in fact, what you have in the developing world, the sort of ascending developing world, is you have a lot of poverty traps. People, quote unquote, act poor, not because of biology, psychology, culture, because of money. They are in poverty traps. They, they need money. And if they had money, they could be unbelievably productive and happy. And and I I love the idea of, of leading of, of leading with UBI. Um, to what extent do you is it still the centerpiece of, of the forward party? Um, is, it, is, it the, is it the core? Is it the entree? Um, or is it um, are, there, are there other things that have joined the plate?
1: Well, oh, it's very much there, front and center. When you go to forwardparty.com, you see there are a number of core principles and universal basic incomes right there. Uh, I, you know, I'm frankly Mr. UBI, <laughs> so which I'm very proud of. You know, it's like having someone say to me on the street, like, hey, Yang." Literally, I get thanked for people's cash relief checks. I mean, that's a pretty wonderful feeling. Uh, So it's right there. What's interesting, Derek, is I ran for president thinking the problem was that people didn't know about UBI, and so I needed to uh, spread the idea. Uh, And now I think the problem is that our government isn't responsive to the will of uh, the average person, and so that's what the democracy reform elements of the forward party are about around open primaries and ranked choice voting. Uh, So... If universal basic income is, for example, a solution or a vision, uh, now the forward party is about trying to make it a reality. And you could, in my opinion, swap out any of a number of big things for universal basic income and it would fit in similarly. Uh, Climate change, you know, and trying to address it. Like, I think that's something that... A lot of Americans are frustrated by our relative inaction. Like, like our system right now is built for polarization, dysfunction, stagnation, frustration. Eventual, you know, it's like you could you could put in just about any big po- policy goal.
0: Negative Asian, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Like, like you can. Uh, it's like what uh, Francis Fukuyama called the vetocracy. It's like I can I can't do anything, but I can keep you from doing anything. Um, which in a time of rapid change is terrible. You know, and then it's related to the gerontocracy, which uh, I, I talk about uh, a little bit. And, you know, some people aren't into the, the fact that I characterize it as such, but it really is. I mean, you know, we're probably careening towards a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024 uh, and their combined age will be 158. You know, it's like people are going to look up and be like, oh my gosh, like we're doing this again. <laughs> it, it's, it's not going to be fantastic.
0: So let me let me assume that I am, and this is not a, a huge or unrealistic assumption, assume that I am exactly the demographic that you're trying to reach. I am mad at the gerontocracy and think that America's leaders are way too old. I'm mad at the vetocracy, Francis Fukuyama's vetocracy and think it's way too difficult to build anything or do anything. The moonshots are over, uh and we don't have any ambitious plans uh for government funded technology anymore unless we're in a pandemic. Um I want a government that is pro-tech and pro-science but also pro-egalitarianism. I want us to care about people um and the UBI I think is a is a wonderful way to express that care. All of this, I'm on your team. At the same time, I remember Ross Perot. I remember Ralph Nader. I know the history of third parties in America, and they can often cannibalize from the party, the party that you are most like. This this has to be something that you've been asked and something that you've thought about a lot. How do you worry about that risk?
1: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, well, I I appreciate all of the affinities you just expressed, Eric. It's super exciting. Uh, so there are a, a number of things I would say. Is that number one, we have to figure out how we're going to transition from this broken-down duopoly to something better and more effective. Uh, And the path there, in in my opinion, is just trying to make it so that independent points of view can come up, regardless of what those points of view are. Um, So, uh, to me, the forward party is going to enable uh, a multi-party system by trying to make the system, frankly, not shut out anyone who's not uh, an R or a D. Um, if you want to get into brass tacks about some of the examples you even cited, Ross Perot led to Clinton winning. Uh, you know, I mean, he got nineteen point three percent. Oh, of I mean, both. Ross
0: Perot stole um, from, stole oh, stole but, from but, Republicans. But, yeah, go ahead though.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. So, so, it, it, and you could look at Andrew Yang and say, oh, like you know, th- this. Uh, this guy or, like, this party is naturally, like, more Demi, Um, there are some facts that actually cut the other way, where 42% of my supporters, when I was running as a Democrat in the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, said they weren't sure they were going to support the Democratic nominee if it weren't me. Um, And so that's almost half at a time when, frankly, I had a big D next to my name everywhere I went. (laughs) Like, Like, that, there were... A lot of people I encountered on the trail were like, hey, Yang, uh, you know, would totally support him if he wasn't a Democrat. Uh, And if you look at the appetite for a third party right now, it's actually significantly higher among both independents and Republicans than it is among Democrats. So it's an empirical open question uh, where the energy would come from. The other thing is that uh, people that, uh, tend to fast forward to just the presidential race, this 2024 question, uh, and there are a lot of things we can do at the local level, at the state level, like we did in Alaska around, uh, not, I mean, I didn't do it, like Alaska did <laughs> around switching to open primaries and ranked choice voting, um, which it, it's good for... Democracy, it's good for sanity and reasonableness to just have better incentives. So there are all of these things I would push people towards and say, look, even if you're concerned about, let's say, the 2024 election, let's table that, do as much as we can uh, in the here and now, let's call it 22." And then if we are heading in a direction where you're like, oh, I'm concerned about empirically tipping the election in a direction I don't like, then we can examine it then. But we're nowhere near that point right now.
0: Just for for my podcast, um, I could you explain what ranked choice voting and open primaries are and how they would directly connect to breaking this duopoly between Republicans and Democrats as you've described it?
1: Of course, I'm very happy to share. So Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska has been in the news a lot lately because she's the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, who's also up for re-election in 2022. Uh, So her approval rating now among Alaskan Republicans stands at 6%, which is very, very low. And so you'd think, oh, this is politically suicidal and she's going to lose her seat. But last year, Alaska shifted from Party primaries, which we're all used to, to a combination of open primaries and ranked choice voting. So what does that shift mean in real life? It means that anyone can run from any party in the quote unquote primary and then any voter can support whomever they want. And the top five candidates in that case in Alaska go through to the general. Now, if you have five candidates, and let's say there are two Republicans and one Democrat and one Independent and one Libertarian, then the the two Democrats would cannibalize from each other. And that's like the spoiler effect that everyone's concerned about. So the way you... Fix that is through a process called rank choice voting, which enables all voters to rank up to five candidates that they'd like to support in order. So if you were uh, a Democrat, you could rank the Democrats one and two and then stop there. Um, So then the candidates don't cannibalize each other. You could also rank the independent one, the Democrat two, and then not be concerned that you are voting for the the independent was somehow going to help the other side win. It gets rid of the spoiler effect. It gets rid of the... Um, the wasting of votes argument. It expresses people's true preference. It rewards more moderate candidates who can build a broader coalition because you have to have a majority of ballots in order to win. Whereas if you had a plurality voting system, as with the Bill Clinton example, I think he won the presidency with something like 40, I don't know, 2% of the vote. So ranked choice voting gets rid of all of these issues. And, And here's one of the things, Derek, that people should understand is that all of the things that you get beaten over the head with, it's like, oh, you're going to spoil it or, or, or you're, oh, you're going to mess it up for one team. Or like, oh, you're going to waste your vote. All of that stuff is just a product of our current plurality voting system that is archaic and needs to be updated. If you change to rank choice voting, then all of a sudden people can vote for whomever they want. The winner has to be on a majority of ballots. You can have new parties emerge. It gets rid of the spoiler effect. The entire Ralph Nader 2024 argument could disappear if we had ranked choice voting uh, on the presidential level. So if someone's scared of these issues, just say, hey, look, we switched to ranked choice voting, problem solved.
0: I'm sympathetic to the argument. I think that we see internationally that countries that have first past the post electoral democracies do tend to. Become two party systems. And that's exactly what we have. And it's made it very, very difficult for third parties, um, in, in the U.S. to, to get started. I would, I would love a proliferation of parties. I think it would help so many surprising second order things. Like, for example, political polarization. If everyone can just sort themselves by saying, I'm against or I'm for Joe Biden, and I'm going to describe the economy that way, and I'm going to see reality that way it's it's too easy it's 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 too easy i think to have that sort of you know head to head death match but when partisanship is scrambled a little bit when there are five parties six parties seven parties then there's more of a competition to not just be against something, but be for the right thing, because everyone's against everything. But maybe you're, maybe you're, you're you, you, you specialize and become for something for a really, really, um, uh, particularly persuasive argument. Uh, so I, I, I love the idea.
1: Right, right now, Derek, you can see the animating force for both parties is hating the other party. <laughs> uh,
0: well, look, I think I think the book is really, really interesting, and um, uh, I, I wanted. The last question I wanted to ask you that was related to the book is um you know you <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to run for president. You make this really funny comment that um a lot of people think that only narcissists run for president and uh it may be true that most people that run for president are somewhat narcissistic, but the actual experience of running for president is just one humble pie after another. It's just this ego smashing exercise where One media beats up at you, uh, someone insults you. uh, It just seemed really, really difficult. I wonder from that experience, like on the other end of the media equation, what you see as the political media's biggest flaws in this country?
1: I think the political media's biggest flaw is that they feel themselves to be the arbiter of what narrative gets included and what does not. Uh, And I use in the book the example of Joe Sestak, who was an admiral in the Navy uh, and was eminently qualified to talk about certainly uh, foreign policy and defense-related issues. And the media wouldn't give him the time of day because he wasn't, quote-unquote, serious. Uh, I heard from any number of people. I, I had an interview with Barry Weiss the other day, and she said that New York Times journalists would regularly exclude me. From coverage of a debate or the campaign, and when, when asked, "Hey, why not have Yang on there?" they would say, "Like Yang is not serious." Um, and then, and then I, when I talked to Barry about it, I was like, "Hey, how does a reporter know whether I'm serious?" And then the answer is other reporters. <laughs> It's like a circularity um, going on, and so I I wish that political media would just show up and be like treat themselves like an alien, being like, okay, what what's going on? Like, who's this? What's that? Um, the problem is that right now a lot of journalists have pre existing connections with folks who are already in office or who've been in politics for a long time, and so there'll be this continuous. Uh, treatment of certain people as, um, more legitimate or worthy of consideration than others. And on my campaign, we talked all the time about how the media was trying to make a particular person a thing. <laughs> you can almost see like the media got to turn towards it. I don't think I, I you know, it's like, uh, I, I think that, um, we had like a very strange set of experiences where the media is concerned, but I, I wish that folks would, uh, would, in some ways, take themselves less seriously. You know what I mean? Like, like not like oh, if I um, somehow expose my readers or viewers to this, then like it's my signing off on them. It's like look, just bring people on uh, and let voters decide. That there's some asymmetry in this too, Derek. Where uh, I think that yeah, I think that one side is better than other than the other at trying to get out of the way. Um, so that that would be my my thought on it. Um, but I'm I'm glad you read. And took an interest in that part of the book. Running for president certainly was a bizarre set of experiences. I don't think most people understand what it's like. And so I tried to uh, break it down in a way that most people could relate to and hopefully find enjoyable.
0: I thought it was so interesting how the the, the combination of what must be utterly exhilarating moments and utterly boring moments that, that, you must, that you must go between. That speaking in front of a crowd, being on primetime TV on a stage to audition to be the most powerful person in the world like that just must be an extraordinary thrill and at the same time because you are on the trail all the time just the the travel the mind-numbing hours of just going between I'm sure wonderful cities but like I'm exhausted when I fly across the country once like to have that be your life for a year and a half just must be totally enervating and so I, I just I just found that that it, it opened my eyes the fact that you must have, there must be really high highs followed by lows, followed by highs, and it must just really sort of churn your
1: insides and
0: um, uh, be a really sort of psychologically discombobulating experience.
1: Well, Derek, you just hope there are some really high highs, man. I mean, like the, the thing I, I compare my experience to is like a traveling comedian, where <laughs> you show up to a town and then there's like a small group and then you give them your message or your stuff and then you hope that they like it and then you literally come back to that town a number of months later and be like, you hope that the crowd is bigger. <laughs> and so so when you talk about like the high highs, none of the highs were guaranteed on the Yang campaign, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, like there's no guarantee I'd be on that debate stage. There's no guarantee there'd be a crowd waiting for me. Right. <laughs> It was, it was all – and there weren't crowds waiting for me. To your point, early on, like, I'd show up and there'd be nobody there. And, you know, the people that were there would not take you seriously because you'd be like, hey, I'm running for president. And they'd be like, really? Uh, you know, like, I I managed to run the gamut of experiences where one, – one thing that just pops to mind, I attended the Iowa State Fair in 2018. I'd already declared. And it was really, really – uh, punishing on a, on a certain level because just no one cared, no one believed. Like I had a young idealistic staffer with me who like urged me to just like run up to people and like introduce myself. And I was like, look, I'm really not going to just like mess with other people's like trip to the fair just to like stick my face in theirs and be like, hey, I remember it's like, <laughs> like, like like let's just get some lemonade and and a uh, turkey leg and try and like act like human beings here. Uh, and then I came back to that same fair the following year. And there was this phalanx of camera people around me and a video camera, and the rest of it. And people had heard of me because, you know, I'd I'd, uh, been on a debate stage or whatnot. Uh, And so um, like the experience was different, uh, but there was no guarantee we'd ever get to the second version of it. You know what I mean? Like, so when you talk about like the highs, highs, it's like, it was just a grind for a long time. Um, and, And even in the, headier days of the campaign, to your point, you would wake up in a Best Western and get up early and then do a local radio interview and then get back in the rental vehicle and just try and, you know, put your best foot forward.
0: It must be it must be exhausting. It's, it's exhausting to think about. I have one more question just about running for president. Um, and maybe it's a weird question. I don't know if you've been asked this before. Anything you do for a long time, you get better at. Like, you don't have to go full 10,000 hours theory of Malcolm Gladwell to believe that as you do something... For more hours, you tend to get a little bit better at it. What is this skill that you think you improved on the most running for president? Like the skill set of running for president to me is totally bewildering, but like you've done it. What what are you better at now
1: than you were four years ago? I am better at performing, Derek. Uh, And I think I referenced this in the book, Um, but you do get reps, Uh, I hated these cable news appearances so much when you're staring at this red dot and you're pretending to have a compelling conversation with someone. Even I thought to myself afterwards, I was like, it's not like I'd watch one of those cable news hits. I'd be like, that guy should be president. (laughs) So (laughs) so I'd turn to my team. I'd be like, hey, do I even have to do these? They're so awful. Uh, And and months later when CNN actually signed me up as a contributor – uh, and I was on air, I'd be like, I hated these. I suck at these. And now apparently, like, I must not be that terrible because, uh, you know, News Network decided that they'd like more of it. <laughs> so, you know, that's like what I got better at. I got better at performing in different types of environments. I got better at staring at a news camera. I got better at talking to Ten people, hundred people, a thousand people. I got better at trying to hold an arena, you know. And if you look online, like there were speeches I gave to arenas of, uh, of sometimes you know, like not gang Gang. It'd be like random Democratic voters. Uh, and so you get these reps. And now uh, my wife jokes too. It's like if I have a speaking gig now, like they'll throw me out. And in the spectrum of my performance. Uh, you know experience it's like okay this group's like 500 people or whatever it's like you know 500 people is not that but big yeah. a deal whereas <laughs> 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 like you know rewind earlier and be like 500 people that'd be incredible
0: that's that's fascinating um well andrew this has been so interesting thank you so much for um having me on the podcast